0: The Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast is a verse-by-verse study with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. These audio sessions were recorded over a three-year period during Shabbat services at Beit Hillel, located in Tacoma, Washington.
1: Let's begin with prayer. Father, thank you so much for the freedom that we have in our land to gather together and to study your word. Lord, I thank You for the fact that Your Word stands above us. That we never could think to comprehend it entirely or in some way to stand as judge over it. But that You have given us Your eternal truth in a way that we can read it and grasp it. And so, Lord, we're grateful for Your Word. We believe that it is the guiding light for our lives and for our times as it has been in every generation. We we know that heaven and earth will pass away, but Your Word remains forever. Lord, as we are in these days of awe and we're anticipating the coming of Yom Kippur, we are so grateful that You have made the way. You have completed the offering and that our High Priest Yeshua represents us before You tonight and that we stand in Him and we have confidence to come before You and know that You will not reject us but that You will accept us because You have accepted Him. So Father, in the midst of our walk in this world, we we empathize with the man who said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when we look to the future and see how uncertain it seems to be both in our, in our own uh, area, in our nation, in the world, we pause to remember that nothing is uncertain with you and that you hold all things in the control of your hand and no one stays your hand or asks you what you're doing. And so we know that you will accomplish all of your holy will. And that you will succeed and that you will have victory. And we with you because you have chosen us to be your people in Yeshua. We bless you for that. We thank you for the Gospel of Matthew and the other scriptures that surround it. That by your mercy you retain for us the story of your son's life upon this earth. Yeshua, we anticipate and await the day when we will see you face to face. And so many of the questions that we have will fall away. But for now, we we continue to seek to know more of who You are. And Father, we bless You. that You have sent Your Spirit to guide us and to comfort us and to encourage us and to lead us in the ways of truth. So tonight we give this time over to You and we ask You, Father, that You would uh, take Your Word and implant it deeply and richly in our hearts that each one would come to know and learn what You intend. We ask in Yeshua's name. Amen. Okay. Um, Last week we overran the um, boundaries of the CD that's recording this. And that's, that's a hassle, so we're going to try not to do that again. It's not really a hassle, but, I mean, it just means two or three extra steps to try to put it all together and get it up on the Internet. As I said, at, at uh, torresource.com you can find a link that says Matthew, uh, Matthew study. And if you click on that link, there will be copies of the pages. And I, I, what I tend to do is correct them when I get home. So instead of saying commentary at the top of your first page, it will say commentary if you download the uh, the uh, pages that are up on the website. But I obviously don't catch all of the, of the typos, even on uh, the ones that are up on the website. So if any of you, even those of you that are listening, if you uh, catch things that you think need to be corrected, uh, please send me an email or give me a call or something. And uh, that that's just... The more proofreaders, the better. All right. Have you been reading the book of Matthew? Oh, uh, be, before we say that, Lishanah Tovah. Uh, Happy New Year. I hope you all had a good uh, Yom Teruah. Um, of course, some people celebrate Yom Teruah for two days, so they're just finishing today. But um, And now we're... Heading towards uh, Yom Kippur, that most joyous of festivals. In fact, um, there are some rabbis who understand the word afflict to really mean to rejoice. And it's, there's a possible possible way to translate it that way. Instead of afflicting your souls, make your souls rejoice it's from a word that means to sing. So um, we do have both of those, don't we, as we come to Yom Kippur? All right, we have uh, last week, or last class period, it was two weeks ago, we finished off a quick whirlwind introduction to the book of Matthew. And were there any questions that any of you had that you didn't uh, ask last class period or that you thought of in between as you went over notes, whatever, and you'd like to clarify before we go on? It's all as clear as mud? All right. Well, actually, we're moving in, and please don't get... um, Don't get overly discouraged when I hand you nine pages and we've only gone through the first verse because this first verse is, I mean, we will go much faster in other, you know, when we get into 2 through 17, what are we going to do but look at all these names and figure out if they're spelled right or if we think they should be different or whatever. and uh, so we will move through the book much more quickly than we have and the uh, last class period in this. But in, unless we find a foundation to start with, it's going to be very hard to, to build. I, was, I remember I was told that it, the higher you build, the more substantial the foundation has to be. And so if we expect to get done with the book of Matthew sometime in the future and be able to stand uh, on our theological feet with regard to it, we have to make sure we get a good start. Obviously, the book of Matthew begins with a genealogy of Yeshua. Now, for some people, that, the question would immediately be asked, why in the world would anybody start with the genealogy? And in fact, after the emerging Christian church lost her connection to her Jewish roots, there really was very little reason why you would have a book about Yeshua start out with a genealogy. But we, we know what the reason is, and you know what the reason is, so I don't need to belabor it, but we'll see it time and time again. And that is because Yeshua did not come to begin something new. He didn't come as unattached to those who had come before him. He came as a fulfillment of prophecy, as a culmination of millennia of God's revelation. And so it's so important for for, the, for Matthew, the writer of this gospel, to link at the very beginning, to link Yeshua back to all of that. And we'll try to see how he does that. So sometimes we wish he had done it a little more easily, because the first chapter of Matthew is filled with problems. Uh, for those of you who have a view of inerrancy, now do you know what I mean by inerrancy? Inerrancy is the doctrine or the belief that the scriptures were entirely without error when they, in their original giving. Uh, you know, very uh, very few people believe that the book that they have in front of them that they call the Bible right now is entirely without error, there are some people who believe that if they have a King James Version that it's 100% without error. Uh, but but we all know that that's, that that's not true because if you take the King James Version that you buy down at the bookstore today and you compare it with the King James Version that came out in 1611, there's a huge number of differences. So, you know, no version is, is has remained uh, static. But what I mean by that is... We know that there were errors that crept into the scriptures through copying them. That's an inevitability. Have you ever tried to copy something, you know, line for line, word for word, a lot of it over and over again, like type it in or something? It's almost impossible to make it an accurate copy, no matter how hard you try. I know that I transcribed the book of Matthew from a Hebrew uh, manuscript, and I did my level best. I checked and double-checked lines, and I'm still finding mistakes. So the same thing happened when they copied the scriptures. So no one is saying that there aren't copying errors that have come into the manuscripts down through the millennia. But inerrancy says that there is no error in its original giving. Or to put it another way, God did not give something to the writers of, of, of Scripture that was wrong or that was false or that somehow was not what he intended. That's our belief. Well, that being the case, then, we have to ask ourselves, why are the genealogy lists different? And as we'll see, you know, they're very different. And and sometimes, we, in some cases, we can't give an explanation for it. So let me just say right off the bat as we enter into, into chapter 1 of Matthew, what my perspective is so that you know. I, I like to give you my presuppositions right off the bat because... Um, I can't argue argue my presuppositions. My presuppositions are just that, presuppositions. They're givens. I believe that the scriptures are the inspired word of God. And I believe that even in in light of the fact that there are some errors that have come into the manuscripts, that by and large what we have is very much exactly the same as the original, when it was written or when it was spoken. Maybe as much as 80 to 85%. So essentially, substantially, what we have in our our hands is indeed the inerrant word of God. And so when I come to a problem in the text that I can't figure out, instead of presuming that it's the problem with the text, my first presumption is it's a problem with me. I just don't have enough information. We just don't have enough data. We don't. We, we're too far removed from the time it was written and and the, the, the method in which it was written and so forth to maybe figure out all the all the issues. But I don't throw it out. I don't rip it out of my Bible and say, oh, you know, it, it, look, it doesn't match up. You know, um, as uh, as one prominent teacher is presently doing in the in the messianic uh, circles with the Book of Hebrews. You know, he says, well, look, it it says that the golden altar of incense is in the most holy place on, uh, you know, and it's not in the most holy place. It's in the holy place. Any any schoolboy would know that. So this guy doesn't even know what he's talking about. Well, again, when we come to a problem, we say, well, there's a major problem here. We don't start out by presuming that the text is wrong. We start out by presuming that we don't have all the information or there's something we don't understand. Now, on that problem, it doesn't take you very long to figure it out. The word that's translated altar in your English Bibles is the Greek word that in the Septuagint is always translated censer. It's used three times and it's translated censer. Well, is there ever a golden censer of incense in the most holy place? is there? Is there? Yeah, there is, one time a year. The high priest carries it in there. And according to the rabbis, when he carried it in there, he left without it. They never tell you how he gets it back out. Because he lets the smoke just keep going. So the writer of the Hebrews is very much aware of that, and he's saying, and anyone who reads it, any schoolboy who reads it, would know, oh, he's talking about the day of Yom Kippur. Because that's the only day when you have a golden censer in the most holy place. Makes perfect sense. You just have to look a little further than your English Bible sometimes. I wish the uh, problems in Matthew one were that easy. Um, they're not. <laughs> so just don't lose faith. It's just that we need more information, and and I'm sure we'll get more information. We get more information all the time. All right. Let's look at the uh, page 13 where we start with chapter one. And as I said, it begins with the genealogy of Yeshua. And why does he do this? For a couple of reasons, at least, and probably more than what I've listed. First, following the Babylonian captivity, the Jewish community was very keen on tracing genealogical records to ensure family purity, and especially as it pertained to the priesthood of the returning exiles. If you're going to have an established temple, a reestablished temple and, and a priesthood, you have to know genealogies because the Torah is very clear. There's only certain people that can go in and do this kind of work and they have to be from the tribe of levi and they have to be from the family of aaron in some cases. So, you you know, family genealogies were extremely important, especially after the return from the exile. It's therefore very much in keeping with Matthew's Jewish perspective that he began by showing the lineage of the Messiah. But secondly, Matthew's intention in giving us this genealogy is not merely to show that Yeshua was and is Jewish, but more particularly to trace his genealogy to Abraham, with whom God made an eternal covenant, culminating in the Messiah. That is, the final and ultimate blessing of the covenant made with Abraham was, in your seed all the families of the earth will be blessed. And from the viewpoint of the apostles, Yeshua was the seed through whom this promise was realized. So, if you think of the Abrahamic covenant, there are are numbers of promises that God gave to Abraham. And in each case, in the five times where he reiterates those promises, he always puts this one last. In your seed, all the nations or all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So in a way, in a very real way, the Abrahamic covenant is not, does not find its zenith, does not find its high point in the salvation of Israel. He said, I will bless you and I will make your name great. I will multiply your seed. You will be a blessing. Those who curse you will be cursed. Those who bless you will be blessed. He said all those things and all of those things are eternally true but the high point of that covenant is not the salvation of Israel the high point of that covenant is the salvation of the world that comes through Israel and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed some would you know there are some Jewish people who would think well that's that that boy. you're almost being anti-Semitic there like God's high point is Israel as I've I've used don't get me wrong Israel is the apple of God's eye Israel is his chosen nation. He will never forsake her. And she's chosen in a way that no other nation is chosen. I'm, I'm, I would emphasize that time and time again. But I've used the analogy of Israel as a butler. Israel is God's butler. And the butler is, is to serve somebody else. And Israel was to be a light to the nation. She was to bring God's uh, message of redemption to the nations. And that's what Israel is to do. And she is most fulfilled when those that she serves are blessed. And so, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed is the high point of the Abrahamic covenant. And And Matthew wants us to see, by the very first verse, the record or the book of the genealogy of Yeshua the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He wants to emphasize that. Moreover, in the unfolding revelation of the Abrahamic covenant in the Tanakh, the promise was continually narrowed in terms of its fulfillment. It first was given to Abraham, then renewed to Isaac, then to Jacob, and then narrowed to the tribe of Judah. From the tribe of Judah, the family of Jesse was chosen, and particularly David. It was to David as the chosen king of Israel that God made the internal covenant of kingship and promised in an eternal dynasty culminating in the reign of Messiah. Now, I, I'm just... Uh, presuming that you are familiar with some of these texts, some of you I uh, probably beat them to death. So, but um, for those of you that maybe aren't familiar with it, Second Samuel seven is it's the it's the description of what has become known as the Davidic covenant. It was the covenant that God made with David that that He would make him an eternal dynasty. That is, whenever there was a legitimate king, it would be from the line of David and any other king that was not from the line of David would be considered illegitimate not appointed by God and that ultimately there never would there would be a there would come a time when a king of David would reign forever and would never be deposed would never be dethroned and when David when David gets this message That play on the word house. David wanted to build God a house. And God said, no, you can't build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house, meaning I'm going to build you a dynasty. And what is it there in 2 Samuel 7 that David does? Once he gets this in his mind, he goes in and it says he sits before the Lord. That must be in the holy place. Because before the Lord usually means before the the, the ark. And he's sitting in the holy place, a king sitting in the holy place, but he's also a priest. And he says... Now I understand that you're talking you're not you're talking about the distant future. And he says, This is the Torah for mankind. This is how the Torah is going to become the blessing of all mankind. Well, Peter, in his message at Shavuot, which is recorded in Acts two, picks up on that theme. And he says David was a prophet. And it says being a prophet, he looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. Yeah, David was a prophet. He he was given a revelation of Yeshua as the reigning king that would be the fulfillment of that covenant made to him. And he realized that in this Messiah, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He put together the promise of Abraham and the promise of reigning kingship that was given to him with the Messiah who would come. And Peter sees that and says, it's this one who was raised from the dead. He is the one who has fulfilled the promises that have been made to David. Well, Matthew is all part of this. He's all part of this, this time of, of, of renewal when Yeshua has ascended and how he's, he's experiencing the message of Peter at Shavuot. And so he brings this all together when he says, son of David, son of Abraham. The, the covenants are not separate. The covenants are linked together. The Abrahamic covenant flows into the Mosaic covenant, flows into the Davidic covenant, is all talked about in the New Covenant. And, and, and our Gospel writer puts that together when he says, Son of David, Son of Abraham. Matthew's genealogy then traces Yeshua's lineage from Abraham through David, marking Yeshua as the legitimate royal Messiah who would sit upon the throne of David as the messianic king. Can you, uh, you know, uh, one of the things that I, uh, that I keep wanting to try, try to do, for myself at least, as I'm studying the Gospel of Matthew, I constantly want to try to, you know, smell the air, feel the dirt of the first century. I, I don't want to read this in the 21st century America that's impossible I mean that's where we are that's what we're going to read it you know I mean I was even looking through the genealogy list today and see that there's one uh, there's one name in one of the ver- the English versions that's that's um uh, spelled J O D A and of course a J is a ya so you already have Yoda I mean right out of uh <laughs> you know I thought yeah we are reading this in the 21st century but um you know I I what it, what was going on in the minds and hearts of people like Matthew and others who had come to not they didn't just come to figure it out it had it had dawned on them in the sense of revelation god had shown this to them this yeshua is the one he's the one that the generations have been waiting for every generation of Jewish people every mother, Jewish mother that was giving birth to a child was saying is it a boy child, if so is it possible that this one could be the promised redeemer as the people waited and waited and and time and time and time again, were discouraged with defeat and with, with being decimated and moved out of their lands thinking, when will our Redeemer come? And it, it dawned upon Matthew. It dawned upon the, the, the disciples. It was revealed to them that He was here. He was the one. And this was confirmed to them when He rose from the dead. You know, the, the words of the disciples on the way to Emmaus just ring in our ears. And we had hoped that He was the Messiah. And Yeshua says, oh, you foolish and slow of heart to believe everything that Paul said. No, everything that Moses said. So suppose that you were in the synagogue and every Shabbat you were praying that the, that the root of David, the shoot of David would flourish That God would cause the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. Say you were Matthew in the synagogue. You're praying this every day. And in your heart you're saying, he's here. We showed up. That's what he's writing about. That's why he's writing this. Say, you know, everything you've been hoping for, he's here. Of course, he expected that his brothers and sisters would say, he is? All right. But they were expecting something different, weren't they? They wanted this Messiah to come and overturn Rome. How could Matthew, how could Mark, Luke, how could John, how could the disciples, the 12, how could they explain to their brothers and sisters who were Jewish in faith and in community that he's come, he's here, it's real, but he's not going to overthrow Rome. That's tough. You know, I mean, try to put yourself in that position. Is he really a redeemer? Is he really a savior, a deliverer? You see, we have so easily moved everything over to a non-material kind of a world. We think of Jesus as the savior of our sins, but not the savior of our pocketbook, and clearly not the savior of our, of our nation against terrorism. so so we. No. He is a savior in one little realm that has to do with something we can't see, we can only feel and talk about and touch by way of our soul. But that's not the case. You read about the Savior as He is uh, outlined in in the Tanakh, and what does He do? He comes in and He wipes out the nations. And He comes in and He delivers Israel out of her distress when the psalmist constantly is saying that the Lord delivered me, He is my Savior, He's my salvation. He's talking about the fact that He was out wielding a sword all day and He came home alive. I'm not saying that he doesn't extend that to an eternal salvation, which I think he often does. But this first century Matthew is talking about a Yeshua who has come and he's trying to explain to us in what way he is the Savior and in what way he will continue to save even after he has ascended. Because let's remember how the story ends. You've all read Matthew at least once. Is there anybody here who hasn't? No, I won't ask that. Everybody's read Matthew at least once, right? I mean, at least once you have. Maybe some of you younger people, maybe you haven't. Well, that, that was a good time. You know, open up your Bible and read it. How does it end? We see how it begins. The record of, or the book of the genealogy of Yeshua, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. How does it end? Everybody, take your Bible and turn to the very end of it. What's the last verse in the book? Yeah, what is that last that last verse in the book? Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you and behold, I am with you always even to the end of the age. In other words, in other words, Matthew wants to say, look, he's ascended, his story is not over. He is the savior, he is the reigning one, he is the deliverer. He will deliver Israel physically as well as spiritually. He will deliver us physically as well as spiritually. So the, the story is, is kind of unending. Matthew gives us the first part and tells us how the end is going to come, but he doesn't tell us exactly. All right. The third purpose of the genealogical record is to dispel the accusations, which were apparently very early. We read in John 8:41, the Pharisees there are uh, confronting Yeshua, and they're giving him a very underhanded kind of a jibe. They say, we're not born of fornication, implying what? Yeah, that Yeshua was. That Yeshua was of illegitimate birth due to his mother's improper behavior. One such version of this slander was that Yeshua was born of a Roman soldier named Pantheros, and, and there's uh, several other uh, derivations, ben pandira, and sometimes it's spelled pantera in some biblical literature, that this one and Mary had cohabited, Mary who had been divorced from her husband on the basis of adultery during the betrothal period. Origen notes that Celsus, and Origen had a disputation with a Jew by the name of Celsus. There are numbers of these disputations in early uh, church fathers. He had one with Celsus, and Celsus was aware of this particular slander against Yeshua. He brings it up in the debate with Origen a slander that was taken up in some rabbinic literature produced in the era when Christianity had gained a formidable posi- position against Judaism and during which growing persecution of the Jewish community was carried out in the name of Jesus. <clears throat> so if you are a uh, the Jewish community and you're constantly being marginalized by this growing Christian church, and you have some historical data that would indicate the founder of this new religion, was an illegitimate son of an adulterous relationship, that, that could be pretty powerful ammunition. And the Jews did use it in their polemics against the Christians and in their debates. Exactly how early the slander against the legitimate birth of Yeshua became an issue cannot be determined. But by all indications, it was quite early and it appears certain that Matthew intends by his genealogy to dispel such slander. He wants us to know Yeshua is not illegitimate. He is affirming the virgin birth. You know, and um, most of us, I think, have our roots in Protestant Christianity. Protestant Christianity has a tendency, well, all, all movements. We always identify ourselves in one way or another as other than somebody else. You know, we, we have a tendency to identify ourselves as what we are not instead of, all, instead of sticking only with the the positives. And sometimes we have to do that. Um, Protestants have a tendency to diminish the virgin birth because the Catholics have made it a you know a heresy I mean the way they have taken it they have made it into a heresy so for the Protestant church has a tendency to diminish it it cannot be diminished the miracle of Yeshua's birth is at the heart of what we believe and, and, and Matthew wants us to know that while we can trace the legal lineage of Yeshua through his earthly father Joseph he in fact was not born in the normal way that we would expect but that the work of God in a miraculous unexplainable way brought his conception within the womb of Mary and he did that for his purposes his way you see and i have talked with is i've talked with jewish people from israel israelis And they think that's the most stupid and most incredible thing one could ever imagine. You really believe if your daughter came to you and said she was pregnant, but it was God who did it, not her boyfriend, you'd believe that? So, I mean, it is incredible, isn't it? It's not any more incredible than the miracle that God would love sinners. I mean, miracles are miracles. If he spoke and created the world, why would it be so difficult for him to bring about the birth of his son in a mysterious way that we could never explain? And the idea, and we'll spend a lot more time on this when we get into verses 18 and following. But um, the idea that, well, really what happened is, is that emerging Christianity took up a pagan notion because there's all kinds of pagan myths about virgins having, giving birth. Well, why wouldn't there be? Satan loves to uh, mimic things. Take what God does and try to make it, uh, mimic it. So which came first? God's idea to send the uh, seed through a woman only? You say, well, what does it mean in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman is the first thought there planted when we have the, uh, the miraculous birth of Isaac as the promised son? And then like, we've, like we studied at, uh, on, on Rosh Hashanah, the, uh, Genesis 22, the Akedah. Why is the parallel between Isaac and Yeshua so close? Well, it's close in his birth too. There are little things that are being told all the way along about this coming one who would come not through normal means. And as you know, I I think that's what circumcision is telling us. I think circumcision signals this coming virgin birth. We should not diminish it. Just because the Roman Catholic Church has abused it doesn't mean it isn't something that should be near and dear to us and something that we can't explain, we affirm with full faith that our Lord and Savior Yeshua came to us by a means that it was not the normal means of procreation. Matthew's method of showing Yeshua's legitimacy is twofold. First, he affirms the virgin birth of Yeshua by ending the genealogy with Mary. And if you look at genealogies, especially Jewish genealogies, the women are usually not there, only in very exceptional cases. But acceptance of the virgin birth could only be on the basis of faith. The miracle of the birth of Yeshua would be dismissed by those who were already predisposed against him. To such detractors, Matthew takes a different approach. If Yeshua's detractors deny the legitimacy of Yeshua on the basis that they accuse Mary of improper behavior, they must likewise reckon with the fact that in the legitimate and noble line of King David, no less than four women of questionable life are included. Tamar, daughter-in-law of Judah, played the harlot and bore twins by her father. One of the twins, Perez, is listed in King David's genealogy. Rahab, of course, was a prostitute by profession, and she becomes the mother of Boaz. Ruth, the Moabite, whose own ethnicity would have disqualified her from being included in the Jewish community, was an ancestress of David. Moreover, some might question her relationship with Boaz at the threshing floor. Some of the uh, rabbis say that, that, that when she uncovered his feet, that that meant more than just uncovered his feet. I don't think so, but some of the rabbis did. Finally, Bathsheba, with whom David committed adultery, bore him Solomon, the legitimate heir to the Davidic throne. It may be that Matthew specifically includes these four women in his listing in order to dispel those who, while unwilling to accept the virgin birth of Yeshua, were nonetheless more than willing to call David the legitimate king of Israel. So, you know, it's uh, equal, equal weights and measures. If you're going to accept David as the legitimate king and you're going, to, you're going to dispel Yeshua because you don't think his lineage is pure, wait a minute, let's go back and look at the lineage of David. So it may have been a way, at least for him, to, uh, to get the ear of some who would have just out of hand dismissed Yeshua as irrelevant. There may be, however, an additional reason for Matthew's inclusion of these four women in the genealogy of Yeshua. All of them would have been considered foreigners. Tamar was either a Canaanite or an Aramean. And Philo, in his uh, list of virtues, actually says that. Comes right out and says it. So, I mean, here's a contemporary Jewish uh, scholar uh, of the first century who would have affirmed that. Rahab was a Canaanite, Ruth a Moabite, and Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah Uriah the Hittite. The inclusion of Gentiles within the legitimate line of David and ultimately in the line of Yeshua signals an underlying motif in Matthew's Gospel. And I I really want you to help me do this. Keep your eye open for everything that begins to signal that Yeshua is saying in in the book of Matthew, particularly, about the gathering of the Gentiles. The blessing upon the nations promised to Abraham is fulfilled in the coming of Yeshua. Matthew has the Gentiles in mind a lot of the time. It's a little bit under the surface because Yeshua says, we're going to find out, he, he tells his disciples in the book of Matthew, right? He tells his disciples, don't go. When you're going from town to town, don't go to the Gentile towns. Go only to the lost sheep of Israel. So he has a very deep purpose in coming to, the, to his own people first. But ultimately he understood that when Israel would get herself together and would shine her light, that would bring in the Gentiles. And this was, this was well understood in the first century. Even by, uh, by the general Jewish community. Um, when when James stands up and says that the, in, in Acts 15, when he says that the, the fallen sukkah of David has been restored, what does that mean? It means that the throne of David is being restored, but the throne of David was not being restored. Right? They were still under the hand of Rome. You, you understand what I'm talking about? You know, Paul comes and he, he at the at, in Acts 15, he gives the council the report that all of these Gentiles had been coming in. And, and there was this great, great uh, revival amongst the Gentiles. And James stands up and he quotes Amos and he says, oh, this is the fallen sukkah of David that is now being restored. How in the world could David's reign be restored at a time when Rome was stronger than ever? Well, the feeling was, or the understanding, the theological understanding was that when you begin to see Gentiles coming to worship the God of Israel, that's a signal of the Messianic times. The Gentiles will begin to flow in to, to worship the one true God of Israel, and that will signal that the time has come for the Messiah. And that's what James is saying. He's saying, oh, well, of course, Messiah has come. We should expect the Gentiles to be flooding in. In fact, the Pharisees were hoping they could make that happen, right? Yeshua said, you go over land and sea uh, just to make one disciple. I mean, the Pharisees were hoping that, they, that this was the time. Let's go tell the Gentiles. Maybe they'll all... Take up what we're doing here and that will be proof that the Messianic age has come. Which ties into why Paul tells the the, the, the Gentile believers in Rome to be obedient to the faith so that they could make Israel jealous. If Israel thinks that you're all off doing your new religion, they're not going to think that it's a time of the Messiah because that doesn't mean the Gentiles have come in to worship the one true God. So you'll be obedient to the faith and then Israel will know this must be the time of the Messianic uh, uh, times. But wait a minute, which Messiah? <laughs> so that all that whole idea of the gathering of the Gentiles is going to be a motif throughout the book of,
0: of uh, Matthew. This teaching is one of the 218 audio sessions found in the five-volume teaching series titled A Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew by Tim Haig from Tor Resource. This product is the fruit of over three years of studying and teaching through the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse, and from a Messianic perspective. The five-volume set is available in softcover book or digitally as PDF files. To order your copy today, visit torresource.com.
1: obvious that Matthew groups his genealogy in three groups of 14. Look at verse 17. I know we're kind of skipping around, but look in the first uh, in the first chapter and verse 17. It says, in conclusion, after he's given, gone through all of the uh, genealogy, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. So we have three groups of 14. The first group is from Abraham to David, the second is from Solomon to uh, Jeconiah, and the third from Shetiel to Yeshua. The Greek manuscripts, however, list only 13 names in the last grouping. Now, turn to the back pages that I gave you. Not the last one, but the pages uh, 20 and 21. I started a list here. You may have to correct it. And change it how you feel it should be changed. In the far left column, I've given you Matthew. In the, in the next column, I've given you Luke's parallels to Matthew. And it's in reverse order. We'll talk about that in a minute. And then I give you it parallels to 1 Chronicles. And then I give you some of what we have found in the so-called Hebrew Matthews. You know, those documents of late uh, origin that have the book of Matthew in Hebrew. Now, if you notice, if you go down to, um, let's see, on page 20, count up from the bottom, four rows. And you see that the Hebrew Matthew includes Avner, and none of the other manuscripts do. So the Hebrew Matthew says, oh, there's supposed to be 14, 14, and 14. So it adds one in there to make sure there's 14. Why do you suppose none of the Greek, couldn't the Greek scribes count? I mean, they wrote down there's going to be 14 in the first group, 14 in the second group, 14 in the third group. They certainly could have counted their names to figure out if then they knew that there had to be one missing. Why didn't they add one? The only thing that we can say is that they apparently didn't consider it all that important. And the reason is, look, and if you're still on page 20, you see in the line, in the column that has First Chronicles, you see where Joash is? I have three pluses after that. That means there's three generations that are left out by Matthew. And there's more in other places, too. I just those were obvious. Same thing is true with Joash. Or Josiah, excuse me. There's one left out in Shethiel. There's one left out. You see, Matthew is not giving us every generation. He's skipping some. Because he wants fourteen and fourteen and fourteen. He's not all that he's not all that concerned. He wants to hit high points, maybe uh, ancestors that were a little more known than others. And of course in the Hebrew when it says such and such is the son of somebody else, it could mean grandson. Could mean great grandson. The word Ben can be used simply as ancestor or offspring. So yeah, it's not a problem. Okay question? I'll repeat it. So if- exactly that 's the question I wanted you to ask why he wants us to see that he wants us to see that, that Yeshua does link back to Abraham and to David legitimately, even if he 's not giving us each and every generation he 's giving us the some high points along the way and he 's leaving a few out, but he wants to group it into fourteens. Why can I tell you in, as we go along okay um, in fact, we're still answering the question of why 13 in the last group. It is not uncommon in biblical lists that discrepancies between stated totals and actual totals are found. I mean, go look. At, if you have your Bibles, look at First Chronicles 3.22. It reads this way. The descendants of Shechaniah were Shemaiah, and the sons of Shemaiah were Hatush, Egal, Bariah, Ne'ariah, and Shafat. Six. Well, count how many sons there are. There's only five. Now you say, well, maybe one got left out or something. Well, then a scribe would have changed the six to five. They weren't stupid. It's just that we have this we we have this computer mentality, and and rightly so. You know, when you're working with a computer, if you don't put it in exactly the way the computer wants it, says no, it's not there, right? I mean, you can't put any period or any space or anything in, but the computer says it's not the same thing because the computer's stupid. The computer only knows zeros and ones. It has no idea what you're typing. Scribes weren't that way. They weren't stupid. But they just didn't, they weren't that concerned about totals in every case. They just weren't that concerned. And I've given you several other examples where you have lists of things. You know, you'll have lists in in Ezra and Nehemiah of gold vessels and whatever, and they they tell you there were a thousand of this and a hundred of this, and then they give you the total and it doesn't match. They could add. So maybe it wasn't all that important to them. Maybe the scribe said, ah, 13, okay. There was 14, he just didn't list one, and we don't know who it is, so we're not going to add it. Or some have suggested that Mary is to be added to the last one again, to emphasize the virgin birth. So you have 14 generations, 14 generations, all men, and 13 men, and then there's this one last person to fill out the 14th, and that's Mary, because this is a special case. You can't list his father, even though they do list, list Joseph, he's not really the father. So they they, they add Mary in as the 14th. Some of us suggested that. Regardless, Matthew intends for us to see that there are three groups of 14. Why? Well, there are a number of explanations. Some have connected it to Daniel's prophecy. I'll let you read that. I don't think that's right because I think whoever – well, it's a commentator by the name of Moore. I don't think he's understood Daniel's, Daniel's text. So it doesn't say there are seven weeks. It says there are 62 and seven weeks. But his, his point was that if there were seven weeks – or seven groups of years and a generation is 35. Take 35 times 7, you get 490, which is about the number of years between the decree of Darius and the coming of Yeshua. So that's one suggestion. I don't think it works. Number two, some have noted that the cycle of the moon is 28 days, 14 waning and 14 waxing. In this scheme, the period from Abraham to David was the waxing and from David to the exile that of waning, with the exile being the low point. Then followed the period of waxing when the zenith Zenith being that of Yeshua's appearance. In fact, this is based upon the Midrash, which uses a similar approach, but the problem is that the Midrash that uses this approach sees the month as 30 days, not 28, and divides it 15 and 15. Others have suggested, I'm on number 3 on page 15, they have pointed to the fact that the number 7 is prominent in the Bible, and particularly in the calculation of the sabbatical year and the jubilee year, right? We've just been studying that. That's all what Rosh Hashanah is about. You have six years, the seventh is sabbatical. When you finally have seven sabbatical years, you've come to the jubilee year. And this is all the picture of redemption. That's true. Matthew's three groupings of 14 can thus be subdivided as six groups of seven with Yeshua being the final group of seven, which eventuates in the dawn of the eternal Sabbath or the Jubilee. In this regard, one should also note that the Chronicler specifically emphasizes David as the seventh son of Jesse. The weakness in this view, however, is that Matthew emphasizes the number 14, not the number seven. I mean, he could have just as easily said, there were seven generations from this to this, and seven from this generation to this. I mean, if he wanted to emphasize sevens, he could have. Uh, Tobias Locks, in his commentary, notes a reference in... the. Uh, the Mishnah Avot, Perkei Avot, as well as in the dirabba Natan, to the effect that fourteen generations existed between Moses and the Rabbinic period, or fourteen generations from Moses until the established Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. He suggests that Matthew's use of fourteen generations, ending in the appearance of Yeshua, was As to say, you think that the tradition has been transmitted to you from Moses by way of 14 generations in your literature? I say to you, on the contrary, the founder of our religion received the tradition from Abraham and his genealogy has three times 14 generations back to the patriarch. Well, that's a nice, I mean, Locke is a rabbi, so that's a nice rabbinic way to look at it. The most popular explanation for Matthew's three groups of 14 relates to the numerical value of the name David. And I think this probably is what he's doing. Of course, as I say in the side note, this presupposes that the readers were aware of David's name in Hebrew, not in Greek. And I think they probably were. David was a very common name, and everyone would have heard it known. And besides that, you have Melik David. I mean, everybody knows Melech David. So I, I can't see why the readers, even if they were Greek, wouldn't have known the Hebrew name of David. Now... In Hebrew, each letter, as you know, has a numerical value. All of beginning is one and Bet is two and so on. So if you take David's name, which is Dalit, Vav, Dalet, guess what? It equals 14. Moreover, David is the 14th name in the listing. And the name David is made up of three consonants corresponding to the three groupings of 14 names. So you have three groups. That stands for Dalet, Vav, Dalit. You have 14. That stands for his name. He's listed the 14th. And so... It all points to David, 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 David. Why? Because Yeshua is the son of David, and we'll see what the emphasis is, I think, in that. Oh yeah, I've, 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 yeah, I've seen that. The, all the times of the camping in the wilderness wanderings is equals forty-two. Also, I, I don't know if that has any, I don't know if it has significance either. But um, if you think, why would, Moses, why would Matthew have done that? You know, Hebrew literature of this time and earlier were very taken up with this kind of thing. It's, it would not be surprising at all to uh, to have things arranged in such a way as to emphasize. Um, a numerical value of a name that, that's, that would not be in any way out of place happens all the time in the rabbinic literature and it happens not un, uncommonly not, mes, not necessarily gematria that's what we call gematria but ha, it happens in other ways in structures and so forth in the, in the Tanakh as well so it, it's not, it may sound a bit skewed to our way of thinking in terms of modern uh, English literature but it certainly wasn't in the time of Matthew Of these explanations, I think the last is the most probable. Matthew's emphasis is that Yeshua is the legitimate king and that he is the Messiah, son of David. Thus, the genealogy itself, as well as the form and structure in which it is given, emphasizes this. If this is the case, and we are to understand a cryptic pointing to David in the manner in which the generations are grouped, then from the very beginning of this gospel, we may note... Matthew's overarching purpose to present Yeshua as the long-awaited son of David, the one who would reign upon David's throne as the final and ultimate king, as God's Messiah. The listing of Yeshua's genealogy both in Matthew and Luke is notoriously difficult, however not only because of the textual variance, but also because of the apparent discrepancies. But before we look more closely at the genealogy itself, we should try to understand the difference between an ancient perspective on history and our modern views. First, in ancient times, the telling of history, including the listing of ancestors, was done in order to make an ideological point, not merely to relate brute facts. In other words, this is not the Census Bureau that we're reading. It's written for a different purpose. And the purpose, in some ways, dictates how it's written. Spelling of names, giving alternate names, etc., were not considered important. The larger picture was in view rather than the minutiae of the details. To our modern way of thinking, uh, looking at things, this might seem irresponsible or sloppy. But the ancient way of telling a story was far less concerned with minor details and far more concerned with the overall picture. Secondly, the writers of Scripture used Sources. They doubtlessly, I mean, how else could they have given a genealogy? How could you trace your genealogy if you didn't have sources? You weren't there seven generations ago. You'd have to use sources. They used those sources that believe, they believed to be the most accurate, but the fact remains that they use sources. Matthew, for instance, relies upon the Septuagint of 1 Chronicles 1-3 through 3 for the two first groupings of 14 generations in his list, which helps explain the spelling of names, etc., even when it differs from the Hebrew. Did Matthew and Luke have different sources for the genealogies they offer? Perhaps they did. And if so... This surely would explain some differences between the two listings. Finally, both Matthew and Luke present their genealogies as factual, not as something they have manufactured. As such, we come to these listings as likewise factual, and the seeming discrepancies between them exist not because they were mistaken, but because we have insufficient data to understand and interpret these antinomies. Uh, One commentator, Hagner, puts it this way, and and I like what he says in general. In these genealogies, we must not expect accuracy by our modern standards. Omissions, variant spellings, and even variant names, for instance, some persons with two different names, may be expected in genealogies, with many of these alterations motivated theologically. By the way, just a quick question. How many of you have ever traced your, tried to trace your genealogy back? Did you ever find different spellings of names? It isn't amazing. It's like, you know, you have a last family name, and it's spelled five different ways. I don't know if this is true or not because I've never been able to verify it, but I have been told that in all of the extant Shakespearean uh, book, work, works that we have, he never, where his name is written, he and he has written his name, he never spells it the same way. I, maybe he did that on purpose, or maybe, as some think, that it wasn't Shakespeare; it was some. You know, ghostwriter. But uh, whatever. I mean, there was a time when spelling didn't mean the same thing that it means now. If you can't spell in our day and age, people think you're uneducated. But there were a lot of people with a high education and with a high intellectual ability that could care less about spelling. It didn't matter in, in certain times. And it didn't matter nearly as much in uh, – in, in, now, if you were writing scripture, that's different. If you're writing you're – copying Hebrew manuscript, that's different. You counted the letters. But if you're just writing down a genealogy for somebody to have so that they know who their ancestors are, that may be another story. And so when you have these sources that are being used, you're going to have s- – some variations. He goes on, but to admit the theological interest in and impact upon these genealogies need not lead to the conclusion that they are not in any sense meant to be taken as factual. Both Matthew and Luke are concerned to represent the facts contained in their sources. They are hardly creating lists out of thin air. Their genealogies, like much of the content of the Gospels, are to be taken as interpreted history, that is, factual and not fictional data, conceived and set forth with theological goals. These in turn inform. By the eschatological fullness now inescapably present to these writers. In other words, they were looking at what they understood to be the completion of a whole host of prophecies, and they wanted to get you and me to that to understand that. The genealogies are just moving us that direction. They're not an end in themselves. Okay. Now, you may not be comfortable with that. I don't know if I'm comfortable with it. Okay. I mean,. I would like to find an answer to every one of the problems. And and don't don't let me paint the picture worse than it is. I mean, it's obvious that – well, turn back to those pages again, 20 and 21. We may look at these more often uh, as we go along. So, And, and I, I mean that wholeheartedly. Please, go through with a fine-tooth comb and change what you think needs to be changed and then tell me. Because I, I made these fairly rapidly. and There could well be mistakes in them. Okay, But if you think there should be some changes, yes. Okay. Yeah, good question. What's the darkened area? That's exactly what I, you, you you students are so on the ball. That's exactly the question I wanted you to ask. The darkened area shows you where Luke's Luke's genealogy, and Matthew's diverge. Now, if you look at the top of the column that says Luke three twenty three to thirty eight, it says reversed. Okay, why? Well, because he he starts with Yeshua and goes back to Adam. Okay, and Matthew starts. With uh, Abraham and ends up with Yeshua, so I reversed Luke's so that it would match Matthew, so we could see what names he has the same and which. So that's what it means reversed. And I begin with Abraham. I don't go all the way back to Adam because I'm simply trying to parallel with Matthew. You understand what I'm saying? And and Matthew doesn't go back to Adam, so that's that's additional in Luke. Now, so when you you can see that essentially, except for maybe some spelling changes. Uh, you know, for instance, take take uh, after w- w- everything is the same down to to Hezron, and then there, you know there's this Ram or Aram or Arni. There's different ways of, of spelling this apparent same name. Uh, but when we and we can get all the way down until we get to David or King David, and then Luke takes off in a different way. Instead of saying that the son of David, that is Solomon, continues the line. He goes to the line of Nathan, another son of David. So that's where the darkened area is. From that darkened area on, Luke has taken an entirely different line, an entirely different line with the genealogy of Yeshua. Now, some have said, well, he's taking the the, the genealogy of Mary, whereas Matthew takes the genealogy of Joseph. Well, we'll put that to the test. We'll see if that can if that can stand and test. We'll we'll do that another class period. But um, that's that's one explanation. But you can see that there is definitely from that point on they don't match. Okay? Even if there are some names that are the same. And uh, obviously there were a lot of names that were the same because, you know, there were a lot of Josephs, there were a lot of Jacobs, there were a lot of other kinds of typical names. So when you see the same name twice, don't think that it's necessarily the same person, uh, especially if they're generations removed. All right. Back to page 16. Am I going too fast? Are you falling asleep? No? You can always raise your hand and ask a question. Especially if you say, I didn't understand that or "or this really doesn't matter. Could we go on to something else or something like that? Okay, as we said, the the, the book starts out with the record of the genealogy of Yeshua the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He opens uh, his gospel with words that echo the Toledot of Genesis. Now, if you're not familiar with the Hebrew word Toledot, it means generations. But the whole... Genesis narrative is structured around the listing of genealogies of the significant character of significant characters. And so if you look up the word toledotes in the Hebrew and you look for it in Genesis, you will find that it is in important places. And it says these are the generations of the earth. These are the generations of mankind. These are the generations of and the whole thing. And that's exactly how Matthew starts his book out in Genesis five one. It says this is the book of the generations of Adam or we could translate it. Mankind and it seems clear that Matthew intends to mimic this language with his opening words where he says literally the book of the generation of Yeshua Messiah exactly the same words from the Septuagint so anybody that was familiar with Genesis 5 which I think almost all Jewish people would have been since it was constantly studied and constantly read in the synagogues when they heard Matthew start out the book of the the Toledot of Yeshua the Messiah they would have said oh that's just like what Moses wrote in Genesis 5. There was the, the ge- genealogy of mankind. Here's the genealogy of the man who is at the top of mankind. All that mankind should ever be. The son of man. The very zenith of humanity. So, in using the pattern of Genesis 5, Matthew has taken up the line from the Torah that would have been familiar but in using this well-known for, formula for describing the genealogy of Yeshua, he has both linked him to the fulfillment of the patriarchal promise, that is the covenant, as well as presented him as the representative of mankind, even as Adam is so represented. Paul would also represent repre- uh, Yeshua as the last Adam. If Genesis gives the genealogy of the first Adam, Matthew gives the genealogy of the last Adam. And I think he wants us to connect that. So it appears most likely this opening verse is to be understood as a subscription, superscription or a heading. This is the title of his book. Did you notice that it doesn't ever say the Gospel of Matthew? Your uh, translators just put that in there at the top. Probably the name of this book is the book of the genealogy of Yeshua the Messiah. That's the title. It doesn't really fit. You know, it doesn't. It doesn't connect with, what, with the next verse. It's kind of like by itself. It kind of gives us the overall purpose and message of the book. Yet the use of the word sephir is used in, as used in Genesis 5 as well as in Matthew 118 in connection with the genealogical listings. So maybe it's just specifically talking about this first chapter the fact that the book may be used in several ways, the word book can be used in several ways, of the whole work of an author as well as for a genealogical list may actually have been in the mind of Matthew as he began his gospel in this way. One commentator wrote it this way. uh, Verse 1 is telescopic. It can be extended to include more and more of what Matthew is beginning to write about. First, it can cover the genealogy which immediately follows it. Then it can refer to the account of the birth of Jesus. And thirdly, it can mean History or life story. Finally, it can refer to the whole new creation, which begins at the conception of Jesus and will be completed at his second coming. If this is the case, and it seems most probable that it is, then we should find in this opening title of Matthew's Gospel not only an introductory statement for the genealogy that follows, but also a general outline of the entire Gospel itself. Matthew intends to show us how Yeshua fulfilled the Abrahamic promise, as well as how he is the promised son of David who legitimately reigns as King Messiah. All right. The exact combination Yeshua Messiah. Did you read ahead? How many of you read ahead? Are we? Are you surprised if you read ahead? How many times do you think the combination in our normal English Bibles, Jesus Christ or Yeshua Messiah? How many times do you think that's found in the Gospels? Just a ton of times, don't you think? Yeah. You that would be the, that would be your normal. You know, it's not. It's hardly found. I mean, in that combination. In fact. Um, Matthew only has it here and in 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 18 verse 18 twice. It is it is uh, only found in Mark one place, the first verse, and it's never found in Luke. Now you say, well, Tim, what, who cares? Well, when you find something when you find a combination of something that isn't very often used, it means you should look at it a little more carefully. If it's something that's used over and over and over and over again, it kind of gets commonplace. But you say, oh wow, that's different. See, it isn't different to us because we hear it all the time. But it would have been different to the readers of Matthew. Why? Well, because you, the rabbis constantly talk about Messiah, and they sometimes say that the Messiah's name will be Menachem, or Messiah's name will be you know, some other name, but they're doing a play on word. Menachem means the one who gives comfort. But here he has taken a common name that was very common in the first century and linked it to Messiah, he has identified the Messiah by this personal name, Yeshua. And that's what just would, you know, stick out at you because you didn't know who the Messiah was. Nobody had said, you know, you know Joseph's son, the carpenter down the street, yeah, he's the Messiah. I mean, that, that would just knock you over. So what? You know, instead of saying Yeshua ben Yosef, Yeshua the son of Joseph, now you're saying Yeshua HaMashiach. That's why it's important. Now, do you think Paul grabbed hold of that? You bet he did. He uses it 80 times. See, so by the time you have Paul writing his epistles, he has really, I mean, this thing has become settled. We know the name of the Messiah, Yeshua. Yeshua ben Yosef. This combination, Yeshua Messiah, then, is uh, so prevalent in Paul's writings, which tells us how it has progressed um, in terms of of the story of Yeshua, his work, and and how it spreads so quickly. Now, the spelling and pronunciation of Yeshua changed over time. You know, this is this is some of the things that we deal with on the internet. I don't know if any of you get out on the internet, but you know, there's people who say, you know, if you, you, Yeshua's name should be pronounced Yahshua or Yahashua Ye, or something, because they want to they want to find the word Yah in it, the, the 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 divine name of God Yah in in Yeshua. Well, you know, bless their hearts. I mean, he is divine he is divine, but, you know, he, he isn't divine because his name is spelled one way or the other. And, and if you just look at the data, it's very, very clear. The spelling and pronunciation of the name Yeshua changed over time. It is related to the Hebrew name for Joshua. Yehoshua. And it's spelled a couple of ways in the Hebrew Bible. Which was shortened in time to Yoshua. This is seen in, in manuscript evidence. And then it was shortened to Yeshua. Or Yeshua. Or Yeshua and the accents will shift when letters drop out. Studies have shown that the even shorter pronunciation, yeshu, and it's oftentimes written without the ion, in which the final patak is dropped, was a dialectical phenomena in the Northern Galil and not as many have supposed a deliberate slur on his name by later rabbinic writers. If you study at all the history of early Judaisms and then the history of the Jewish Christian relations in the Middle Ages, why was the Talmud constantly burned by the church? Because it was said the Talmud blasphemes Yeshua, does it in some cases it might actually in some cases it might, maybe by implication, it definitely says that he was a, that that he was a deceiver of Israel, and so forth, but it was taught well, okay, uh, the rabbis had a ruling that if a if a sage's name shows up in the Mishnah or the Talmud, he is to be listened to. They had a big problem. Yeshua's name is found in the Talmud. Yeshua ben Yosef, Yeshua of Nazareth, is found in Sanhedrin, forty two, and other places. So that's why during the Middle Ages, the, when the Jewish people started to reproduce the Talmud by way of a printing press, they did they excised this. Because they did not want the church to think that they were, you know, because it says some things that Yeshua did that he really didn't do, like he led Israel astray and, and led Israel to idolatry I and mean, that kind of thing. So they, they, they censored it. They, they took it out. And it's only been of late in the, in the more lateing, later printing, printing of the Talmud that it's been put back in. Now, one of the things that the rabbis did was they said, okay, we, we, won't say his name, we won't spell his name all the way out. We'll leave the iron off the end. So they pronounced it Yeshu. Well, that was the way they pronounced it anyway. Then someone came up with the idea, ah, Yeshu could be an a, uh, a acronym for may his name and memory be blotted out. It's the words, Yimach Shemo may blotted out his name and his memory be. And the first letters of each of those words spells Yeshu. Now, it is true that they, that they said that about the name of Yeshu, okay, in later times. But that isn't why it was pronounced Yeshu in the first place. As I've I've used the illustration before, that would be like saying that the word Ford really means found on the road dead. It doesn't. Ford was the last name of a man who was the founder of that company. It's only later that people who were sometimes begruddled with Fords came up with fix or repair daily or found on the road dead or first on race day. You know, there's all kinds of things. So if if later on in the history of a word, people have want to give it new meaning, they can do that. But that doesn't mean that was its original meaning. You understand? Same thing with Yeshua. So don't, there's no problem in the rabbinic literature f- for them to call him Yeshu. That was the way his name would have been pronounced in the early times in, in, the, in the north uh, part of Israel. This was the Galilean pronunciation, as Flus and others have shown. I've given you the data in the, in the uh, margin. In fact, the Greek Yesus may itself explain the regular use of Yeshu in the later rabbinic materials as an assimilation to the Greek Yesus. Because the, the Greek Jesus does not have the guttural, uh, Yeshua. It leaves that off. And if you're wondering about anything else on that, talk to me afterwards. Yeshua was a common name in the first century. Three of the 72 who translated the Septuagint had the name, and Josephus lists 20 persons by this name in his writings. The name is found in inscriptions and burial texts. A pre-exilic example is found in Luke's gene- genealogy, and in Matthew 27, 16, one manuscript has uh, Barabbas called Yeshua Barabbas, or Yeshua. Barabbas, Jesus Barabbas. In Acts 13.6, the sorcerer in Cyprus is called Bar Yeshu- Ye- Jesus which is the son of Jesus. And in Colossians 4.11, Paul's helper is literally Yesus, who is called Eustace, or Jesus, who is called Eustace. And by the way, there was a Jesus in the second century who was crucified. So, I mean, it was a very common name. No doubt, under the influence of the emerging Christian church by the 2nd century, the name Jesus, or Jesus, Yeshua, disappeared as a proper name, according to Jastrow, who has a lexicon of that period the full name yeshua is found only in reference to the ninth order of the priestly courses found in first chronicles 24 7 through 18 so even the rabbis of that time avoided the name even though it was a good jewish name in the first century by the second century third century it no longer was an acceptable jewish name um we just don't use that name now that such is not the case in catholic countries right Mexico and and I mean when I was down in Guatemala I don't know how many uh, uh, Jesuses I met yeah <laughs> oh uh, that that's that's a common uh, the J is always taking the place of the of the Y in uh, it's you know the idea that it's Zeus is a total urban myth the idea that the, that the use of J to translate the yod is somehow pagan that, that's that's a total total urban myth and so. Uh, Jesus isn't just an Anglicism of the Greek Jesus, because the y sound comes over into the j sound in in uh, in an um, English transliteration, and the the long e of the a in uh, in Greek comes over as a short e in. I mean, it's the same thing that we have. How do you get Eve from Chava? Nobody was trying to say that. Nobody was trying to besmirch Chava's name. By saying Eve, it was just as they began to. Tra- ha- have any of you worked with transliteration in Hebrew? Nobody does it the same, and so it's. Um, Jesus is not a bad translation, actually, of the Greek Yesu, which is, which is not a bad translation of the Hebrew Yeshu. And if you, if, you, if you go, if you study multiple languages, you'll discover that there are certain things in one language that always, for instance, there are many times when you have an H sound in Hebrew that comes over as an S sound in Arabic. You know, how do you say Shalom in Arabic? Shalom. Yeah, Salam. So it, that's just the way languages work. I don't know why. But that's that's the case. Have you have any of you heard this floating around the internet that that when you take Yeshua and you make it Jesus, it's become pagan? Have any of you heard that? Yeah, yeah. I, um, we need to start a website called uh, Messianic Urban Myths or Urban Legends because it would it would help us. Uh, yes, Buzz. No, no. It, the J was pronounced yeah. Yeah, right. And you have the Z sound coming out of the French. I don't. Yeah. French yeah so you know I mean uh, uh, American English and even European English is a mixing pot right we have all kinds of things that have come into our language alright Christos is related to the Greek verb Krio meaning to anoint and was the word used by the Septuagint to translate Mashiach Christos One who was anointed for a special task. And if you look up any, if you just look up the word anointed in your concordance or on your computer and you look to see what what the Septuagint has, almost inevitably, it will have the word Christos. The English Messiah is an anglicized form of Mashiach. There you have it again. <laughs> and the, the SH comes over as an as a S. Instead of Mashiach, it's Messiah. Like many titles, Messiah became a proper name, and we find this occurring in the apostolic scriptures. This is true of, you know, I, uh, I, Pam's here. I, I noticed that when I'm down at uh, Dr. Githin's office, the people, the gals out front, use the word doctor as a proper name. They don't say the doctor said this. They say doctor said and everyone knows who they're talking about. That's very common in language is that a title can become a proper name. And so the same thing happened with Messiah. Messiah could be, you can just say Messiah said you don't have to say the Messiah. Yet it never lost its connection to the whole prophetic idea of Messiah as a title, the one promised from of old who would come to restore the fortunes of Israel and to bring in the final redemption. Clearly, Matthew has his messianic, this messianic thought in mind by his use of the word Christos, and he uses it numbers of times, and I've listed them for you. What about Son of David? Son of David was a standard Messianic title for the rabbis. It was developed, no doubt, from the Messianic expression such as the sprout of Jesse or the shoot, spoken of the shoot of David. And... Uh, I've given you some things from Qumran. 4Q Patriarchal Blessing, 4Q Florilegium, uh, and so forth. Those are all from the Qumran scrolls, and some of you have English copies of those. You could look those up. In the 18 benedictions, we read in the 15th one, the sprout of David, your servant, speedily caused to flourish and exalt his power with your deliverance. For deliverance, we hope, all day. Blessed are you, I who causes to sprout the power of salvation. So, the sprout of David is clearly a messianic term quite early. Thus, in 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 the first century, the Jewish expectation was that a deliverer would arise from the line of David who would fulfill the promises made in 2 Samuel 7, namely that one of his descendants would be seated upon the throne of Israel forever. Paul stresses this in Romans 1, 3 through 4, in which the confessional statement regarding Yeshua includes that he was, quote, born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. It is this core issue that Matthew wishes to stress, not only in this opening uh, genealogy, but also throughout his gospel, namely that Yeshua is that promised son of David sent by the Father at the appointed time to bring the final redemption of his people. Indeed, Matthew may well be reflecting the ongoing dialogue with the synagogue in which prayers for the arrival of Ben David were offered. Matthew's message is that he has arrived, that he has come to accomplish the salvation for which Israel was waiting for no less than nine times does Matthew refer to Yeshua as the son of David? He also records, as do Mark and Luke, Yeshua's
0: own dialogue regarding the son of David. Remember, that'll be a fun text to get to. You've been listening to the commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. If you like this teaching and want to hear more, please visit us at TorahResource.com. Join us again next week as Tim takes us through another verse-by-verse lesson In the Gospel of Matthew.